0: You are listening to the official podcast of the Mission Redlands. We are a growing community living out God's radical love. Welcome to our first Sunday of Advent. Uh, The word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means arrival. So in Christian churches all around the world, the next four weeks are a celebration uh, of the arrival of Jesus Christ on Christmas Day. So we... Uh, join them in that celebration, and as you are made aware this morning, each Sunday of Advent is themed around uh, a different um, a different theme and this week's was around the concept of hope and I would tell you a little story about hope. I grew up as a Boston Red Sox fan at a time where it was not very nice not very good to be a red sox fan it was uh, it was pretty rough and There was hope despite this, but i got to give you a little bit of historical context so you understand it. In 1918, the Red Sox won the World Series, and they didn't do it again for 86 years. And uh, right after that uh, World Series, their owner sells their star player, a guy named Babe Ruth. And in a Red Sox nation, we called this the curse of the Bambino because for the next 86 years, we were always basically looking up at the New York Yankees and we, even when we got close in 1946 we make it a game seven of the World Series and the St. Louis Cardinals win the game and we lose yet again and 1976 the seventh game again against the Cincinnati Reds and again the Red Sox lose so this brings you up to my lifetime so in 1986, I'm a senior in high school, it's past my bedtime, I'm listening to the Red Sox game on a little radio, I have my little earpiece in, this is like before earbuds even, I mean this is way a long time ago, looked like a little transistor radio, but I'm listening to the Red Sox game and I'm thinking this is going to be the year the Red Sox are going to win the World Series, we're beating the New York Mets, ground ball, the first base Bill Buckner, the Red Sox first baseman, bends down and the ball goes right between his legs, and I'm like, "Oh my goodness!" Now you got to understand, as a Red Sox fan, like we found, we just knew that our team was going to find a way to seize defeat from the jaws of victory. We knew that they were going to find a new way to lose that the the other shoe was just about to drop. And so, at that moment, I just could not believe it. I literally was crying in my bed, like, "Oh my goodness!" The Red Sox have found a way to lose the World Series again. Jump ahead to 1998, the Red Sox are playing the Yankees in the uh, American League playoffs. Set up, this is going to be great. This is going to be the year we make it to the World Series, and this is going to be the year we win. Our star pitcher is pitching Pedro Martinez, and I remember I was listening to the game on our little nightside radio uh, next to our bed, and uh, uh, I suddenly was like, I can't listen anymore. They're leaving him in. And he's got nothing left in the tank. He's going to fall apart. I'm shutting this game off. That's like the where like, a Red Sox fan is really at. You knew you were going to find a way to lose. Sure enough, I wake up the next morning. They lost to the Yankees. They lost in seven games. And the Yankees went on, I think, won the World Series again that year. So the idea of hope as a Red Sox fan is, is sort of interesting. Because every spring, something happens in New England that doesn't happen anywhere else in the world in terms, or in the United States in terms of baseball. There's actually a news event when the Red Sox equipment truck leaves Fenway Park in early February, about a week before the pitchers and catchers report for spring training. Nowhere else is this a news event anywhere else in the country. But in New England, it symbolizes new hope. This opportunity, this is going to be year that finally the Red Sox win. We get all excited about it. Probably there's nothing else going on in New England in February, and that may be part of the reason. But um, there, they, were, you know, that was our opportunity to celebrate this idea of hope. But unlike sort of my Red Sox fandom, uh, in the Bible, hope is not just wishful thinking. Hope is about a trustworthy God and trusting in him. So we're going to see that today. To understand what was going on though at the arrival of Christ and the, idea, why, the reason why hope was an important concept to them, you have to understand what was going on at that time period. So this period of time from the last of the Old Testament prophets until the arrival of Christ is sometimes called the 400 years of silence. Uh, sometimes it's called the intertestamental period, but there's Four things that were going on during that 400-year time period that set up this understanding of hope that we have uh, in the arrival of Christ. The first of these is there was a philosopher named Aristotle, and he had followed in a sort of a line of philosophers. uh, He was a pupil of Plato. And one of the biggest things that Aristotle did as a philosopher, he was very interested in coming up with a theory that unified all of knowledge. So this theme of unification was central to a lot of his teachings. And his star pupil was a young man named Alexander, and Alexander's dad was King Philip of Macedon. And uh, this Alexander grows up as a young adult. He is Alexander the Great. He conquers the then known world. And really around this whole concept of unity or unification uh, uh, of culture that he had learned from Aristotle. And we call this the Hellenization of the ancient world, this idea of Greek culture becoming dominant all across the ancient world. Now, he didn't live that long. He died in his mid-20s while he was still in the process of finalizing the conquering. And his generals fought over the splitting up of this territory. And the land of Palestine was very central, uh, where the Jewish people were located, was very central to these conflicts between the kings. So for a while, it was controlled by the Ptolemies who were out of Alexandria and Egypt. And then for a later time, it was controlled by the Seleucid kings, which were out of Damascus in Syria. So that's sort of our first historical event. Second thing that goes on during this 400-year time period is you have the rise of synagogues. Um, Until this time period, when a Jewish individual was in the process of worship, it either happened in the context of their home, where they would pray, read scripture together, that kind of thing, or at the temple in Jerusalem. But during this 400-year time period, you had the, these rise of things called synagogues, which would be like churches for Jewish individuals. It was a place of prayer, of reading of Scripture. Um, it was a place of fellowship together. And so these emerged during this 400-year time period. Third thing that happens during this time period is you had what's called the Maccabean Revolt. So remember I talked about the Seleucid kings. Well, one of them makes the decision that he wants to get rid of the, the Jewish faith. And he actually sacrifices a pig on the altar, desecrates the Jewish altar, and uh, outlaws the Jewish religion. And in response to that, a family of uh, a father and about five sons called the Maccabees rise up in uh, rebellion against the uh, Seleucid uh, uh, Greek overlords that were there. And they're actually successful in part because they had some partnership with this rising world power called the Romans. But there was a time period where there was an independent Jewish kingdom under the control of the Maccabees uh, during this 400-year period. So that's our third event. Then the fourth thing that happens uh, during this time was the creation of the Septuagint. And all that is is that's the translation of the Hebrew scriptures into the Greek language. This is important because there were not very many people at that time period that could actually read Hebrew. And so you now were taking the scriptures and turning them into the common language of that day. So people now were being introduced or reintroduced to the scriptures in a way that they had not been able to understand them before. But these four incidents lead to this sense of hope that existed, because what's happening as Christ is born is that the Roman Empire has taken over the then known world uh, so, I, once again, the Jewish people are in captivity. But in this captivity, they're now reading the scriptures regularly in their synagogue in a language they understand and are being reintroduced to the prophetic voices from the Old Testament time period with this idea of the Maccabees being in their mind that, hey, you know what, when the Messiah comes that we keep reading about in Scripture, he's going to overturn our Roman uh, controllers, these people that have dominance over us. So, there's this great anticipation. For the arrival of the Messiah. And one of the scriptures that the people would have introduced themselves to during this time period was found in Isaiah chapter 9. And it's a great messianic prophecy. And uh, in fact, in our English translation, it says the hope of the Messiah at the top of that chapter nine, and it describes it. But this would have been the world that these individuals were in at the moment of Jesus' arrival. So they would have been very familiar with this scripture. So, if they were anticipating the Messiah, then I think we have to make a case that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, and if he is the Messiah, then we're gonna see evidence of the fact that he is the hope of the world. And as I looked at this, I thought, there's three things that really stand out as we study the New Testament scriptures that are evidence of the fact that Jesus Christ is truly the hope of the world. Um, We're going to look first at Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. We're going to see that Jesus Christ is our hope of salvation. So let's read this together. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation." For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our new, wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Let's dive into this passage a little bit. He begins in, that, in verse six and says, when we were utterly helpless... That little phrase, utterly helpless, means powerless. It means we could do absolutely nothing in our own power about our condition, about the state we found ourselves in, the situation that we faced. And we see what that situation is at the end of verse six when he calls us sinners. So he puts all of us in that category. And that shouldn't be a surprise, right? Romans 3.23 reminds us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that word sinner Uh, implies two different things. One is that it's it's this idea of being in a state of rebellion, meaning it's who we are, meaning it's our nature. And the second aspect of it is it means an action, something that we've done, meaning that we've chosen to disobey God or we've chosen not to obey God. So you have these two aspects of what it means to be a sinner. We're a sinner both by nature, sort of who we are, and by choice, by the things that we do. And then Paul does this sort of funny thing in verse 7, right? He sort of contrasts it with this righteous or upright individual, right? Saying, hey, maybe if somebody was really, really good, somebody would be willing to die for them. But but guess what, guys? That's not you. He repeats again in verse 8 the fact that Christ God, uh, Christ died for us while we were still uh, sinners. It's interesting in verse 8. I love that. It says, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. So what we see in there is that God was motivated by love. God's action, what he does for us on our behalf, comes because of his love for us. And we remember this from John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son as a sacrifice for, for our, on, our, uh, on our behalf. But to understand this passage, the real key for hope comes Uh, Not just in, yes, Christ died for us. Yes, God loves us. But what actually happens, what's actually described in verse 9 is a reason for hope. It says there, we have been uh, made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ. The fancy term for this is this idea of substitutionary atonement. This idea that Jesus Christ dies on my behalf, takes my place, is a substitute for me, and the idea of atonement is he pays the price. He, he, his shed blood covers my sin. So you see this idea of that, uh, this means that, Jesus, that Christ died on my behalf. And that the shedding of his blood paid the punishment or price that we deserve to pay because we are sinners. And this term made right is this idea of being justified, being made right in God's sight. So without the sacrifice by Christ and without our acceptance of it, we deserve God's condemnation. That's what we see at the end of verse 9, right? He will certainly save us from God's condemnation. But I thought I just talked about God's love. Where does this condemnation thing come in? doesn't seem to fit, right? But to understand who God is, we need to understand his holiness as well as his love. His desire is that every person come to be in relationship with him. But for those who do not, the reality is of their sin means that they cannot be in the presence of, cannot be in relationship with a perfect God. That's where God's condemnation comes in. But thankfully, it doesn't need to be that way, right? We see this in verses 10 and 11. For since Our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son. While we are still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. We have the opportunity through what Christ did for us to be friends with God, to be in a relationship with him. That, my friends, is the hope of salvation that we can celebrate during this Advent season. So Jesus Christ is our hope of salvation, but it doesn't just end there. He's also our hope for living. We're going to see this in, in Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. It says there in Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. So we have we received salvation from Christ, but it doesn't just stop there. This hope that we have continues to drive through how we live as well. We see this verse 24. It says um, that we're to motivate one, or, one another towards love and good needs. Some translations use the expression, spur one another on. That's a, that's a really uh, tough expression because it's this idea of being an irritation, right? The whole idea of spurs on a horse is to, is to cause the horse to jump forward, to be irritated by your action that you have. And so what this verse is challenging us to do is to motivate one another, to be a source of irritation to others, to be willing to challenge others, but expressing our love in good deeds. And this idea of one another means it's something that we do separate from what we're directed to do from leadership. This means that we don't wait till Pastor Jason tells us what to do in order to express love and and good deeds to others, but rather it's something that we encourage one another towards uh, to be doing, to be full of love and good deeds. Goes on to describe a little bit more about this in verse 25 and says, let us not neglect are meeting together as some people to do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is near. So this idea of encouraging one another to meet together, to gather as a church, to fellowship together, to share the gift of hospitality. And while this is a separate verse in the English, In the Greek, it's actually a continuation, Uh, it's a connected phrase. So it's a continuation of what's already been shared in verse 24. And the effect of this then is to explain how we are and where we are to encourage each other. So through our gathering together as a church, um, through our fellowship with one another, through our opening of our homes, this is where we can motivate one another towards love and good deeds. So the reality is is, when you're missing out on church, when you are not fellowshipping with other believers, when you are not opening your home or practicing hospitality, you are missing out on an opportunity to express love and to share good deeds with others, you're missing out on a chance to share Christ's love with others. So we see here that, that Christ is our hope of salvation. We see here that he's our hope for living. And I want to finish today by looking at this idea of Christ being our hope of glory. By glory, I just mean simply that he's the answer for what happens to us for eternity, for what happens to us when we die. And for as long as people have been in the world... There's always been this question, what happens to us when we die? What's it going to be like? And there's this fear that goes with it. And the, the great thing is God doesn't want us to have fear. He wants us to have an assurance of an answer. And that's what Christ provides to us. He truly is our hope of glory. We're going to see this in, in 1 Thessalonians four thirteen through 18. I'm going to read that passage to you. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. In now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves, then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. This passage um, describes why Jesus is our hope of glory. And really, the understanding that comes here is because he's overcome the grave. So when Jesus hung on the cross, he died. When his body was placed into the tomb, he was dead. It was a dead body. But God didn't leave him that way. God Uh, gave him life again, raised him, resurrected Christ, and in his action of resurrection demonstrated the fact that he had the power, the ability to defeat death. And we too, by being in a relationship with God, can have the similar ability to defeat death, and that's what's shared in this passage. This passage shares that those who love God, those who are in a relationship with him, uh, have accepted Christ's work on their behalf, uh, are therefore in a relationship with God and have a secure future for all of eternity. Those who have already passed away will be bodily resurrected uh, to be with God, and those who are still alive when he returns will be raised to life with him as well. That is our hope of glory. So we've seen today that Jesus Christ is our hope of salvation. We've seen that he's our hope for living, and now we've seen that he's our hope of glory as well. Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the hope of the world. As the worship team comes back up, I just want to challenge you with this thought today. In your life, you may be not experiencing one of these kinds of hope, right? Maybe you're here today and your hope of salvation is in something else. You're like, hey, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm better than the guy next to me. I've been doing pretty good works. Uh, I go to church fairly regularly. That ought to take care of me. It's not the hope that is possible in Christ. He's our hope of salvation, and we can be in relationship with him by accepting what he has done on our behalf. So if you're here today and you have the, uh, a different hope for salvation, one that's just wishful thinking, today can be a day of salvation for you where you can put your trust in Christ, through what God has provided for you in Christ's death. But maybe you're here today and you've done that. You have a moment in the past where you look back and say, yes, I've accepted Christ as Savior. I recognize him as my hope of salvation, but man, I'm struggling with how I'm living. I'm struggling because I, I, I don't see that kind of hope in my life. Uh, I'm not in a place where I'm able to encourage others towards love and good works because I'm not, I don't see too many other believers. I'm not at church regularly. I'm not fellowshipping with others. I'm, uh, I'm not uh, practicing hospitality. But today can be a day of change in that regard where you pray, ask God to become the Lord of your life in that particular area. Or maybe you're here today and there's just this fear, this uncertainty about what happens when you die and you can recognize, you can claim the reality that he is your hope of glory. Let's pray. God, we love you. We're so grateful to you for this Advent, this Christmas season where we celebrate the arrival, the birth of your son and the difference that it makes. And Lord, I'm just so, so glad that your son, Christ, Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the hope of the world, Lord. And uh, Lord, as as we look at this and we've seen this today, Lord, that he is our hope of salvation, our hope for living and our hope of glory. Lord, I thank you for that because that changes everything everything in my life, and it can change everything in everybody's life that is here today. Lord, help us to accept that. Help us to live that out in our lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You are listening to the official podcast of The Mission Redlands. For more information, visit us at themissionredlands.com.